Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, how are you doing this wonderful Monday and during the holiday season at that? I mean, I survived it. I think, <laughs> nice. uh, you know, the kids did okay and had a good time. Excellent. But when you, well, I mean, Elijah, my four-year-old, has gone from a week of no school to now having to go to school again. Okay. So I think it's going to be a little rough on him this week, which means <laughs> yeah. it's going to be rough on us. Right. I don't think Archer, as a seven-month-old, will care. Right. He's yeah. down to just do whatever, as long as there's toys and food and stuff to chew on yeah. pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. So is Elijah the type that, was he fired up to go back to school, or was he like, no, I want to stay at home and play? And I mean... It's weird because like some mornings he'll be like, I don't want to go to school today. And then like 30 minutes later, he's like, I can't wait to go to school. (laughs) And so like, you know, you don't really know. And besides that, like, it's just funny. You forget that kids have no concept of time. Right. My wife and I were having this conversation the other day. You know, it's like, you know, where are we going? And be like, you're going to school. Okay. (laughs) And then like, will we be gone all day? Like, (laughs) well, you know. Yeah. (laughs) So you say that and, and. My son always relates to like either like it's going to take forever and it's a hundred hours. I don't know where he gets this hundred hours from, but mm-hmm. oh, not yet. And he's like, but that's going to take so long. It's going to take a hundred hours. And like, I must have maybe said that one time. So now he like any like point of reference for time, it's a hundred hours mm. or everything is yesterday. Like uh, we went to the museum or we were talking about the zoo and we'd went to the zoo in the summertime. He's like, yeah, the zoo, dad, remember yesterday we went to the zoo? And I was like, no, that was months ago. And so, yeah, but everything's either a hundred hours or yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's like, yeah, okay. Keep it simple. Well, yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, we are in the holiday season and I have to ask Matt, have you guys started Christmas decorating? Okay, by you guys, we would go specifically my wife. <laughs> okay. Because I've done a firm, like, I don't understand the point of taking all this crap out okay. and getting all stressed out about it and then putting it in a closet a month later. Uh, so, like... Just keep it in the closet. Yeah, like, for me, if if you want a Christmas tree, it'll... I'm going to do it halfway. Okay. And that's not acceptable to my wife. And mm. she was off... She's a teacher, so she was off all week last week. So uh. part of the entertainment was... Her and Elijah did a lot of the Christmas decorating. And we don't, you know, we live in a townhome, so you can just put, like, lights on the handrails. You don't have to do, you don't have to fall off ladders to to do things. <laughs> Fair so enough, yeah. We're pretty basic in okay. that way. But I didn't do any of it. Not yes. to say I wouldn't have helped if asked. I was just, it, we were pretty busy here at AES, and so I was working. Yes. But the house is decorated. Cool. To only her credit. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, were you not ever a Christmas decorations kind of guy, or did, like... So you're pretty much the Grinch then. You don't. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. Like that's fitting. I find the holidays stressful. Like yeah. people get emotional. They <laughs> want you to be all these different places. Like let's go see ten relatives, and I'm like, I just want to relax. Yeah, like, that's interesting. Yeah, growing up for me, it was like we didn't. 
I mean, A, we didn't live around too many relatives, so it was just our immediate family. And then since living in Houston and having kids, it's just been us and my in-laws. So I don't have to experience the, oh, we're going to go to, you know, Uncle Joey's here and then Auntie Sally's here and and then Cousin Frank's over here. And Because, yeah, I've heard it's like a lot of that. I've never had to experience that. But I'm like your wife. I took all the Christmas decorations out. My wife was doing some other stuff. She helped a little bit, but my kids were fired up. So we've, over the years, have collected several fake Christmas trees, so... We all have one in our bedrooms. We've got one in the living uh-huh. room. Oh, yeah. I yeah. totally, this is, yeah. <laughs> Knowing you, this is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, was, I had the old yeah. school Christmas tunes on, blasting, drinking eggnog. I was right into it. And the Christmas candles, man. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Right. I, <laughs> that's how. That's Happy how holidays, I, <laughs> Justin. <laughs> oh, yeah. If I could help it, it would be a winter wonderland, but we don't have any snow. But anyway, moving on to drilling fluids topics. Today, we're going to talk about something that you brought up, which was a good idea. And I think over time, you know, the drilling fluid business doesn't evolve quite as much as other verticals within oil field services. But I think it's important that as, you know, the industry does evolve, we do, we, we tend to do things a little bit different, whether that's with bits, different technology, directional. But on the drilling fluid side, we've kind of done the same thing for years and years and years, but there are certain, there's reasons for the way we've done things based off the technology and the abilities in the past that have kind of stuck around. And oftentimes we do things because it's what we've always done, not realizing the advancements of technologies that support drilling. And so with that, Matt, you know, we depend upon equipment techniques and concepts that continue to evolve in the oil field. But as things change, what are some of those traditions that need more context as these types of technology advances. And I think we'd be good to, there's at least four or five of them that I can think off the top of my head. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think like we've kicked around some of these over time, I think just because we are a product of our history and look, everybody who taught us anything probably did it for years and it worked for them. But as things continue to evolve, I think you have to take a step back and look at the why. Mm. And is the why the same as the rules of thumb or you know the way we apply things? Is it still that? Right. And, you know, things keep changing. And so I think there's one aspect where, look, as somebody who's been at this for long enough, I need to be vigilant of my habits that I picked up, you know, in the late aughts. Right. And realize like, hey, just because you're sort of like adamant about this, you need Mm -hmm. to remember you were adamant about it because of the kinds of wells you were drilling. Right. But the other aspect of it is like a lot of the people that mentored us or even just the common nomenclature in the industry still relies on some of these things. You know, you get a drilling consultant in the field who like, we talk about sweeps or other things like that. And it's like, yeah, there was a reason, but there's not as good of a reason today. Right. So well, let's kick some of those around and maybe we can provide some clarity to some of those habits to be vigilant. Yeah, for. no, I think that's a great point. And I think oftentimes the whole, the response, especially a lot of times in the field, if you're working with a seasoned vet or someone that's been around for a long time is, well, this is how we've always done it. And that's, I think in the oil field, hearing that time and time again gets frustrating. And what I can appreciate about the, you know, whether it be engineers coming out of school or someone who's new to the oil field, they can look at things through a different lens. And oftentimes that's where some of the questioning can come from. And if you have a decent level of humility, you can say, well, you know what, that is a good question. I wonder why we do this and let's reevaluate. The one thing that, you know, gets brought up and something that I remember drilling certain wells on the Gulf of Mexico was important to measure and something offshore is the sand content. But then sometimes, you know, I've tested it on land in certain basins. Like I've never, I haven't seen sand in eight wells, you know? And so give a little context on the sand content and maybe why it's something that we should look at maybe a little differently or even if at all in some areas. 
Well, I think if you look at what has always been in a water-based mud shack for ages and ages, it was sand content tube, right? And I didn't go back and look at the year, but it's got to be at least 70 years old. And keep in mind what kind of wells they were drilling. Where was all the easy oil? It was on the Gulf Coast. It was on some of these areas where you're drilling a four or 5,000 foot well and you poke a hole in the ground and you produce a bunch of oil, but that was cutting edge at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And so what are you drilling? You're drilling a ton of surface hole. It's probably taking you a hundred days to drill this well. You can laugh about it now, but right, these wells took a while. And so odds are with your poor solids control equipment and your rotary rig that, you know, probably only holds, you know, if it can hold pipe up in the derrick has two, you know, is a double something like that, you'll accumulate a lot of solids and those solids will tear up your pumps and create erosion and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But it's because higher up, you've got these poorly consolidated coarse sand materials. And so keeping that dilute and out of your system is very, very important, right? Yeah. And so it makes a lot of sense in, you know, surface intermediate areas when you don't have great solids control, that it's something you want to keep an eye on to limit all this abrasion. Right. So I think one of the interesting things is we've talked about before, sand content is a size classification, right? It is not that these are actually sand grains that this thing is selectively taking out. It's you pour some fluid over a screen and rinse it off and then dump it in and read the graduated tube and whatever the screen retained, 74 microns right. or bigger, that's sand. So if you're drilling with calcium carbonate, you can have high sand content. If you're, you know, if you're drilling through calcium carbonate, you can have a high sand content. Right. So it's a size classification. It made sense for the types of wells that they've been drilling. And it's not that today we don't encounter some of these scenarios. It's just generally our solids control is way better. We drill really fast, so we don't retain as much of this stuff. And so there's a number of things that technology today has sort of brought forward that I'm not saying, look, if, if you run a sand content tube and you're drilling surface and you have 1% sand, you probably have a problem. Like <laughs> we, we can still agree with that. Yeah. But the fact is those issues are fewer and further between because of the equipment improvements that we have. Right. And the fact that we're not just drilling, that's all we were drilling, right? You drill into a permeable zone, what we would call the intermediate. Let's say it was a Cherry Canyon or something. That was a reservoir. Today it's the lost circulation zone. We drill through yeah. to, you know, to get into the lateral. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great point. And like I said, you know, it's when I first got out to, you know, on a rig as a mud engineer, sand content, I thought we were literally drilling sand or looking for actual sand. And I was like, well, we're not even drilling sand. And, you know, but it makes sense. Like going back to it, it's a size classification, not necessarily, you know, well, sand, quote unquote. Jump back to your Gulf of Mexico scenario where, you know, your upper hole is this very unconsolidated layers of sand yeah. and shale. And guess what? Shale geologically is very, very tiny particles. And so you can rinse and separate them out. And what isn't shale or what passes through the screen is probably mostly sand. Yeah. We just drill really, really fast through that stuff and our equipment's better. Yeah. Well, speaking of equipment, Matt, I think one thing to bring up and any mud engineer who's been offshore has certainly seen this. And, and maybe if you got an older rig on land, you might've seen this, but desanders and desilters, it's typically sits on top of a shale shaker and it helps considerably during you know surface hole sections and in the past they probably use it the entire well the only time i've used it it was was on surface when you're drilling some super unconsolidated packages and you just had a lot of coarse cuttings and 
just crap that you're really trying to get rid of. But yeah, what's sort of your take on this? Is this something that is used? And, and if so, I mean, how much longer do you think we'll even use these things? Well, I think for sort of your mud cleaner application, like you're describing offshore, there's some value in it. But a lot of those same sections now, if we can, we'll drill them pump and dump, right? Like we don't even see returns to surface. And if we do, if we're circulating, we try and because we know how what a mess that stuff can make, the economics tell us that we, you know, maybe we're pretty aggressive. We let a lot of mud flow off the shakers and we try and clean it up, but we're aggressively diluting. So offshore mud cleaner surface, I could still see the application. I think what I was kind of thinking about here with desanders and desilters is how many times have we had a conversation with a customer where we ask them about their solids control package and they're like, I know the rig is equipped with a desilter and a desander. We've never used it and I don't think it works. <laughs> That's probably true. But, you know, kind of going back to when we met with, you know, the Derek equipment folks for those podcast episodes, they said, look, you know, if you look at the cut point of what a quality shaker with quality screens can do these days, mm -hmm. you can probably get that cut point anyways. Right. And so there's less and less need per se for that range, because if you, you know, it's as soon as Bayrite comes into the picture, you'd be throwing that out. Sure. So... There's a fairly narrow range when it's useful, not to say we haven't put them to work in some specific applications where it helped. But once again, we don't seem to drill as many of these types of sections. And then the other aspect is shaker technology sort of covers up for a lot of the shortcomings yeah. to the point where this equipment, even if you wanted to use it, it's unlikely it's maintained well enough to use because you need the right you know, positive suction head. Yeah. You, you no, know, there's, there's definitely pressure a, gauges that work. Yeah. <laughs> it's one thing to just turn them on. And even just, even if you see fluid falling out of the tubes <laughs> or the cones, that doesn't mean it's even working. Like no. there's, so to your point, it, they do require high level of maintenance and someone who actually understands desander and desilters, because just because you can get fluid through them likely means there's a high chance that it's not working properly. And another thing too, is I think the advancement, not only even just in the shaker technology, but just mud tank configuration, the rigs that I used to see them on normally only had two shakers. And right. now most rigs on land, especially because at the rates we're pumping have three, maybe even four shakers. And so again, it's just like the advancement on that end with the volume and the technology of just shakers, capacity is is gone up to where yeah i don't see a need for that on land but offshore yeah maybe so i mean i put out the challenge yeah what is the cut point of a properly equipped desander and desilter right desilter's gonna do a little finer you know what are the cut points what are they relative to my shaker screens and when do they they make the most sense and i can guarantee you there will still be scenarios where they're worth running and it's good to be aware of what they can do and how they might help I just think that the reason we've sort of fallen off anybody even knowing how to use them has been because we haven't needed them anywhere like we used to drilling these surface and intermediate where we're trying to throw out sand and we're drilling, you know, yeah. relatively slowly, all those things. So not to say they're useless, but even going back then, I, I read a, one of the handbooks I was reading said, you know, at any given time, about half the cones in a desilter are non-operational. Yeah. No, so, I remember I was, you know, I was on an inland barge and I remember if we could get like, I forget how many, but most of the time, at least two or three were plugged off mm -hmm. and to unplug them and clean them and everything is a pain in the butt. For so sure. it's like, even if you got a few of them working, it's better than having none of them working kind of thing. And well, right. when we're done this section, 
if we have time, we'll clean them down. Yeah. Which that's a project in half. So most of the time it's like, no, we'll just wait till rig move. And then next thing you know, you got a thousand other things you're trying to fix. So yeah, it's, (laughs) they're kind of a piece of equipment that you forget about it. But then when you really want it, it's like, why aren't these working? And it's like, cause I've been asking for the last three rig moves for you guys to take them apart and clean them. And that hasn't happened. Anyway, been there, done that. Let's talk a little bit more on the property side of things. There's certain properties that over time, you know, we've realized we don't necessarily need certain ones to be at certain, you know, levels. And the reasons they were maintained at that level was because of some, again, old school testing technology. The biggest one that comes up all the time. And I would like to think that as an industry, drilling fluid industry, we're we're getting better. But that's the old ES or AKA electrical stability, Matt. How many times have you had to explain why we don't need 1200 Mm -hmm. ES? Many. I mean, honestly, if you're just looking to sell product, which isn't really our game, we're obviously full service. It's great for your business to say, yeah, you could you need to bump that number up a little bit. But the number of conversations we've had with customers, the amount of data we'd have, we've had to present, the number of times I've presented API recommended practices and all kinds of guidelines, and someone stared back at the face, say, I've heard everything you've said, and I don't believe you. <laughs> And I was like, well, you don't need to believe me, believe all these other people who are smarter and more established than me. And I was like, that's great. I'm going to continue to do this. But there was a reason for it. Like, we're all a product of our history. Original ES meters were pretty crappy. We have a YouTube video on it. It was one of the first ones I made, and you can tell. But it's basically just the equipment was so unreliable, and the emulsifier technology at the time, and a lot of the introduction of alternative, like, non-diesel base oils created this sort of paranoia because muds were flipping a lot unless you had the ES pegged out all the way at 2,000 volts all the time. And then you get this new meter that, one, is automated and can ramp up the voltage at the right rate, the way the API recommends it. And then not only that, but the surfactants are better where you just, you know, you can basically maintain an emulsion with a particular trend and that the absolute values weren't really relevant Like those things came from this, I don't want my mud to flip and I want to do what's safe, right? Like nobody gets fired for doing what the last guy did. And I think that's so much of why it feels so safe to say, well, this is how we've always done it. Now you're not sticking your neck out there, right? This is the safe approach. Yeah. So yeah, you know, obviously this is one I get really frustrated with. I try and be patient with customers and other folks who are interested because it's a really easy way to save money to understand this properly. It's just a very frustrating thing to attempt to explain. And, you know, it is what it is from that aspect. But we've, you know, tried a number of ways and times and we'll continue to try to educate our customers and, and anyone who will listen really yeah. to understand this. Yeah. Well, and I think that, that kind of goes back, you know, into the history books of the flow line and even some of the technical content that you guys were putting out on this tech service side was this was one of the major sort of topics that was like, you know, we literally are explaining the same thing over and over and over again. Let's create something as a, you know, somewhat so people could reference it. And if we build a library of these things, then, Hey, that saves Matt a lot of time and effort writing lengthy emails, explaining the same thing over and over to people. So, and I say that to say this, if if anyone's interested in that and then you maybe haven't been a listener for that long, you know, electrical stability, if you, even if you search YouTube, Matt and his group did a great one on ES and just, it's a tech tip on understanding the history of how the electrical stability 
test why it was developed, how it was developed with the certain equipment. Again, we did a podcast episode on it. So if that's something that you've been scratching your head on over, we've certainly put out a lot of stuff on that and then you can learn more. But if you're always interested to learn even more, you know, reach out to us. And another one, Matt, another major topic. And again, you know, there's out of the customers that I manage, I actually think that none of them pump regular weighted hole cleaning sweeps in the lateral anymore. It's been a long mm. time coming, but yeah. hole cleaning in in itself is always a hot topic of conversation and controversy and debate and, mm. and all the rest of it, Matt. So why is that? I mean, look, if you go back for a long time, it was the rig equipment that was lagging, right? You you could drill a long lateral. It just took, you know, the question was, how fast am I drilling relative to how fast can I pump? And I don't want to slow down drilling to get cuttings out of the hole. And so there was always this awkward balance of, you know, what are hole cleaning challenges and this sort of thing. And look, I mean, there's seriously challenging wells. Think about an offshore platform where you got to drill 60 degrees for three or 4,000 feet to reach a target. Or there's tough hole angles and like they need to be recognized for what they are. Yeah. But- we have excellent hydraulic software. It's come a long way. The API has sort of their recommended practices. We can tell if we're cleaning the hole and we have the rig pumps to do it. I mean, there was a time when you were trying to drill with, you know, 3,400 PSI pumps and drill a mile and a half lateral and that sounded like an impossible task. Right. And everybody, the thing is, especially when the oil field was doing well, it was pretty an easy ask for a rig upgrade to get mud pumps. And obviously you have other things in the system, but the upgrades itself to get to 7,500 PSI systems, it's, I mean, it's pretty standard. It's sort of the expectation now. And so we can pump much, much harder than we need to, to drill the kinds of wells that we drill, at least with these unconventional horizontals. And if you go offshore, guess what? They always get the cool stuff first, right? So yeah. when we had 3,400 PSI pumps, they had 6,000 PSI pumps. They have 10,000 PSI pumps now. Mm-hmm. Like people are willing to commit to the equipment because I think the technology illustrates well enough. There's enough data out there to show what you need and what you can get away with. You know, now in really challenging low ECD environments, you may be threading a needle where you can't pump as much as you want to, or you've got to do some other things. I'm not saying hole cleaning is can't be a challenge in technically complex wells. What I can say is that rig capabilities have allowed us to focus a lot more on turbulence as opposed to suspension. And so like the rule of thumb, right? Have your six RPM reading be the whole size, right? That's not nearly as relevant as rheology sufficient to suspend weight material. And in fact, you know, we published a paper where we talked about one customer we were working with started drilling longer laterals, got scared about hole cleaning, raised the viscosity, had trouble running casing, had trouble getting out of the hole, lowered the viscosity, all of a sudden no problems because increasing the viscosity for fear of having hole cleaning issues was actually depriving you of turbulence and limiting cuttings conveyance. So it's a different narrative with the pumps we have, with yeah. the rig equipment that we have. And granted, I know somebody you know brought this up on LinkedIn a while ago, I think it was the Why Matt Hates Sweeps episode Okay, where we're like, look, t- I totally disagree with you. You know, I'm here in West Africa and the rig is totally limited and we need to pump sweeps. It's like, I don't disagree, but going back to the engineering principles, we have rigs where you don't have to. And many areas 
are insisting on having those technologies move past it. So you don't want to forget those techniques when you're limited. Of course. But recognize the things you don't need to do as the narrative shifts. Right. Well, And I think, I mean, you do a pretty good disclosure of because of rig advancements, this is why we don't need sweeps. But you know, if you see a headline of saying why Matt hates sweeps, I can see someone oh, of course. drawing the conclusion that in any scenario, Matt hates sweeps. Right. Well, yeah. and that's, you know, that's kind of the social media issue, too. It's like, well, <laughs> I didn't listen to the episode, but I disagree with you and I want to, you know, let everybody know. But hey, you know, it got the impressions it drives up. Drives the algorithm. Right. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what will I say next? Yeah, exactly. Right. But, you know, comically speaking, it's, you know, it's a good when you see that why Matt hates or, you know, something that kind of is that bold. You know, yeah, it's like we're trying to capture the attention and hopefully create conversation to where we can all learn and, you know, have constructive conversations around, you know, these exact topics, because I think for so long we just accept them for what they are without questioning the why and do we need to do this? And because ultimately there's a cost associated with all these, right? Of course. Of how yeah. you handle them, how you resolve them, whether you do them, whether you don't. And at the end of the day, economics drive everything. So if we can help increase the efficiency or productivity of what we're doing while reducing cost, you know, that's the motivation. It's just, it's not because we're trying to change things to get a pat on the back. It's we're truly trying to improve the operation here. So. Right. I mean, look, I think we have, it's like we've said before, we think we have great products. We think we have a lot of other things, but at the end of the day, you know, the value creation is in the whole package of trust, right? Yeah. Our customers know, I hope that, <laughs> you know, I hope they truly believe that they get better when we're on their team. Yeah. And that's going to be whatever it takes, whether it's, you know, a product we have, which will demonstrate the value or not using something mm -hmm. that they might think they need or, you know, no, talking them out of spending on money. But, you know, refining that to such a degree that they say, look, you know, to take the next step, I need AES in my corner. Right? Yeah, 100%. No, I think that's exactly right. And that's a great way to wrap up. Unless you got any other thoughts, Matt, I think those are some good topics. And certainly we could create an episode out of each one of them. But for the purpose of today, I think we've covered some good ground, man. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, to the listeners, you know, if you want to throw in any others that come to mind, I just sort of ripped these out as yeah. as I was going. But, you know, we're all a product of our history, right? It's true in every element of our lives. And that's going to influence how we behave and how we do things and sometimes even what we believe in. And, you know, context matters in the same way that, you know, we grow professionally. I'd like to think I'm less of a moron than I was when I was, you know, <laughs> 23 starting in this business. And I hope I get less dumb as time goes on. I think you're headed in the right direction, man. It's it's an aspiration of mine. Yeah. But uh, all that being said. Shoot for the moon. <laughs> yeah. But all that being said, like, let's figure out how we've grown and evolved. And the more we kind of find out about ourselves or find out about our industry, I think looking back is kind of part of the step forward. 100%. And if anyone out there is listening and there was a topic that we touched on that you want us to dive deeper, if there's something else that you've done out there for so long and you're maybe scratching your head wondering, why do I keep doing this? This seems, you know, irrelevant or just doesn't seem like it's really worthwhile. Maybe there's something out there that Matt or I haven't thought of. And if you're out on a rig or involved in the drilling fluid space and you want to know why we do something, Matt and I would love to take a deep dive and figure out why and maybe, yeah, reconsider the, you know, what we're doing out there. But for the listeners out there that continue to watch and listen to the show, really appreciate. Hopefully everyone's having a good holiday season and take care for now. And if you have any questions, reach us out on LinkedIn. Matt and I are both on there, very active. 
Or if you want to be, you want to reach us out on email at the flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. We're checking that as well. In the meantime, until next week, take care, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.